So today we start a new series, Rubble to Return. And the series is based on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, they're really just one book that tell the story of the return of Israel following the destruction of Jerusalem. In a period that lasts about 70 years of waiting. And so it's not just simply the story of the physical rebuilding of Jerusalem. Yes, the temple is rebuilt and the walls around the city are restored, but it's also about reclaiming their identity as the people of God. And it is a long and difficult road that they travel to get there. And it brings up this really, really important question in the story. What do you do when the world around you begins to crumble? What do you do when everything you have been so certain of, everything you have known, everything you have trusted in is now gone? And you find yourself in a foreign land trying to come home and trying to return to that identity as the people of God. But before we can kind of get to the rebuilding side, we have to talk about how did we get there in the first place? Because before you can actually move on, you have to figure out how it is that you ended up there in the first place. One of Cammie and I's favorite shows to watch is NCIS. And we liked it a lot better before Gibbs was off the show. I don't know if there's any NCIS fans. But two of our favorite characters, or at least mine, um, are Ducky and Palmer. And their job is to perform the autopsy. And the autopsy is important in the case because it gives clues as to what happened, how they ended up there on that table. And I think it's important that we learn to do autopsies in our life of mistakes, of sin, autopsies when our life seems to fall down. Because if we don't understand and we don't know what it is that put us there, it's really easy to begin to repeat that pattern and find ourselves right back where we were once again. Because it's one thing to be in pain and to struggle and to hurt, but it's another to repeat those patterns endlessly and find ourselves back there in the same place And unfortunately, that's what happens in so many people's lives, is it's these repeated patterns that place us back in those positions, that leave us wanting to know, how is it that we got here once again? How did we find ourselves back in the same place? See, because Israel never stops and does that as a people. And it's interesting that they end up in this same place over and over and over again. And so I want to just, before we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, I wanted to do an autopsy of Israel, really of Judah, and how they got there as their world crumbled around them. 
And then maybe the bigger question is, how do you move forward once you are in that place? And so the kingdom begins with a king, Saul, and then David, and Solomon, and then Rehoboam. And as Rehoboam is king, the nation of Israel is divided into a northern kingdom, which is Israel, and a southern kingdom, which is Judah. And it goes really, really well for about the first 200 years for the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they have this succession of really, 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 really bad kings. And about 200 years in, the northern kingdom is basically no more. And you're left with Judah, the southern kingdom. And they have a king that comes into power named Josiah. And Josiah seems like he is going to be the savior of Israel. He does so much for this nation, for Judah, and he brings the people, really their hearts and their minds and their souls, back to God, centering their life around him. And his life ends in a battle with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh at the time. And one of his sons becomes king. But then there's a transition of power. Where Egypt is the big boy on the block, now it's a new nation called Babylon. And a new king called King Nebuchadnezzar. And as King Nebuchadnezzar becomes king, one of the sons of Josiah now sits on the throne. His name is Jehoiakim. And he's going to to reign for about 11 years sitting on the throne as one of the people, as one of the leaders of the people, as the king. And he decides along the way, because he's basically a puppet king for Nebuchadnezzar, that he is going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And he decides he's going to do things his own way, and that he doesn't need the help of anyone else, and he's going to pay dearly for it. It says in Chronicles, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with, a bron- with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. And so one thing you need to know about King Nebuchadnezzar is he is a collection. Lots of people collect coins, maybe baseball cards, maybe guns, maybe magazines, maybe stamps. Nebuchadnezzar collected kings. And whenever he would march into a city and take it over, he wouldn't kill their king. He would put him in shackles, and he would march him back to Babylon, and he would put him in his trophy case. And whenever he had a party, whenever he had a banquet, he would parade these kings around and show them his power. That every nation bows their knee to King Nebuchadnezzar. No one can withstand his power and his might. And so for 11 years he reigned as king, and now King Nebuchadnezzar steps in, and that is the end of his reign. And Nebuchadnezzar and his army is invading, and they are surrounding Jerusalem, and they're starting to get really, really scary. And his son Jehoiachin is now placed by Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. And he is 18 years old when he becomes king. And for three months, he is king of Judah. 
And he seems to have control until all of a sudden he decides, you know what, I don't want any part of this. And he too surrenders, along with all of his family, to Nebuchadnezzar. Because he's taken into custody, just like the others. Going on. Um, There we go. In the eighth year of the reign of King of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner, as the Lord had declared. Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. Verse 14. He carried all Jerusalem into exile. All the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. And so his surrender is disastrous for the people of Judah. As he is carried off to be another trophy in Nebuchadnezzar's trophy case. And everyone who means something to this nation is sent off as exiles. They're pulled from their home, from everything they know, and they're sent off to a foreign land. And it seems like everything is falling apart for this nation. And then this prophet Jeremiah enters the picture. And he writes a letter, and he sends it to the next king, Zedekiah. And he says, you need to get this letter to the exiles. And this letter basically says, hey, um, there's going to be a long time of waiting. Seventy years of waiting. And so I want you to go in as foreigners in this land, and I want you to settle down, and I want you to have homes, and I want you to work, and I want you to build a family, and I want you to take care of yourself, and I want you to help Babylon to prosper, because as it prospers, you're going to prosper. And he says to the people, I know the plans I have for you, and they're plans to give you hope and a future, and not to harm you if you will just simply trust me. If you will search for me, you're going to find me. And so these people find themselves alone as foreigners. And the new king is a guy named Zedekiah. And for the first five, six, seven years of his reign, things go pretty well. Until he gets the idea that I'm above the law. I don't need anyone else's help. I'm not really worried about Nebuchadnezzar. And so he stops paying his tribute tax. He stops really giving Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon what's theirs. And he decides that I'm going to build an army. And if you remember, the best and the brightest have already been shipped out. And so it's just this ragtag group of people who are left. And Nebuchadnezzar gets word that Zedekiah is rebelling against him. 
and he makes the decision that we're going to put an end to this once and for all. And so he gets his army, and he begins to threaten Jerusalem. And Zedekiah says, hey, um, there, there was this crazy prophet running around here a, a while back. And he was telling us some, some stuff about God giving us hope. And Does anyone know where he is? And so he sends for Jeremiah. He says, hey, can you tell us what God wants us to know? Do you have a word from God? And here's what he says. Jeremiah verse 30, or chapter 38. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives, and they will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. And I don't know that Zedekiah likes that message so much. And Babylon's camped outside and Zedekiah is basically refusing to say, I'm going to surrender. And then he wakes up one morning and something miraculous happens. He looks over the wall and Babylon is gone. They've disappeared. And he thinks to himself, this is amazing. I stood my ground, I've done what I needed to, and now they're gone. But in this waiting, Babylon decided Egypt was in a really weak point. And Egypt was threatening to give aid to Judah. And so Babylon leaves and goes and attacks Egypt. And sure enough, they show back up on the doorstep of Jerusalem, surrounding the city, waiting for an opportunity. And Jeremiah says, wait, this isn't going the way I thought it was going to go. Do you know where Jeremiah is? Someone says, yeah, yeah, we didn't like his message, and so we threw him in the cistern. Can someone go bring him to me? And so they go and they get Jeremiah and he asks him again, in chapter, sorry, um, 17, verse 17. There we go. There we go. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord, the God Almighty, the God of Israel says If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared, and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. And in verse 18 he says this, But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, and they will burn it down, and you yourself will not escape from them. What will Zedekiah do? Will he finally listen to the message? And Zedekiah says, no, 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 you don't understand. There's a lot of people who were here with us in Judah who have already gone over to Babylon. And I am terrified of them. I will not surrender.
And he refuses to listen to Jeremiah. And what happens next makes Zedekiah, the last king of the nation of Judah, says this in verse 4. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. And he was captured and he was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. And then verse 7 says this, They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And that is the last thing he would ever see. Then, then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Because somewhere along the line, King Zedekiah thought that he was different than everyone else. Because he had a front row seat to see his father, to see his brother, to see his nephew shackled and taken off to be another trophy in Nebuchadnezzar's trophy case. See, somewhere along the way, his pride continued to grow and get so out of hand that he said, I know that these are the rules and they apply to you, but they don't apply to me. I'm different than everyone else. And just because they went down this road doesn't mean I will. And he refused to bow. And it became the end of the nation of Judah. And then in verse 8, On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, and an officer of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind him some of the poorest people of the land who worked in the vineyards and fields. All 
that remains is the rubble. Everything they know has been stripped away. And the reason it's important to do an autopsy is because if you don't understand what got you there in the first place, you're never going to figure out not only how you get out, but how you avoid going back to that place once again. You see, it was their sin that led them there. And ultimately for Zedekiah, it was the sin of pride that led him there. I'm different than everyone else. And yes, it may affect you, but it's not going to affect me. I'm different. I'm better. I'm above the rules. And he finds himself paying dearly for his sin. Because you see, we talk about sin affecting us, but your sin affects other people. It doesn't just have an effect on you. It affects all of those who surround you. All of those who are part of your life. And for Zedekiah as king, it's his sin that is going to lead to the downfall of a nation. And it's going to lead to the loss of lives of his family and those who surround him. People are going to pay dearly. See, your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects a whole multitude of other people. There's consequences with it. Sin comes with consequences. And Judah and Israel are going to pay the consequences. But one of the things that Jeremiah keeps saying throughout his letters and throughout his prophecy is wake up! God is trying to get your attention. God is going to great lengths to say, hey, listen to me. Return to me. Come back to me. Orient your lives around me. And the people struggle to hear. See, for Judah, for Israel, it brings up the question, what do you do when you wake up the next morning and everything around you is rubble and ashes? What do you do? And maybe the question for you and I is what do we do when we wake up in the rubble and the ashes, trying to rebuild and restore what we once had. You see, God was trying to get their attention, and He was trying to give them a way out. Why? Because they belong to Him. 
and he has a plan for them. He's told them that. They've heard that. But they struggled to believe that. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. You belong to him. And he has a plan for you. If you're willing to submit to him. And it brings up a great question. How do you view God's discipline? Is it restorative? Or is it retributive? In other words, God doesn't discipline you to pay you back. God disciplines you to bring you back. It's not retribution. It's not God saying, you deserve this, it's on you, and I'm paying you back. It's God saying, hey, I need you to refocus on me. I need you to return to me. I need you to follow me. And I think it brings up an even bigger question. Is it possible? Is it possible what you thought was meant to destroy you? was actually meant to save you. Is it, meant what, is it possible that what you thought was there to destroy you was actually meant to save you? Because Babylon looks pretty scary on the other side of the wall. But if they had simply listened, God was going to use Babylon to save them. And there were going to be consequences. 70 years, 60 years at this point. 60 years of waiting and as exiles before you're brought back to this land. Until you return home to the place you once knew. If they would only listen. If they would simply listen. I wonder. I wonder how often God is trying to get our attention. To give us a wake-up call. To say, hey, 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 hey. I need you to focus back on me. I need you to return to me. And maybe, maybe the thing you thought was going to destroy you, the addiction, the divorce, the loneliness, the loss, maybe the very thing you thought was going to destroy you. 
God was using to save you. To bring you out of that land. Because He loves you and cares for you and has a plan for you. See, there was hope after exile. There was hope in a future Messiah. There was hope in a new temple. There's hope in God's new kingdom. There's hope in the promise of Abraham. There's, there is hope in exile. There is hope in the pain. There is hope in the darkness. There is hope in the uncertainty. And maybe the thing that you thought was sent to destroy you, God was simply using to get your attention. To bring you back to Him. So about a year, year and a half ago, we did a series called Sex in a Broken World. And as a part of that series, um, we started an email, help at shilohroad.com. And it was just simply a, a way to help connect people who were struggling with addiction, with people who have been there and come through on the other side. And the purpose of it really was for that series. But I found that it was such a blessing to people during that series, I wanted to kind of bring it back. Not just simply for sexual addiction and, and sexual sin, but for people who are struggling with anything. People who find themselves in that dark place and they're not really sure where to go to get out. And the hope of that is that you can send me a message at Help at Shiloh Road and I will get you connected with someone who's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And who's been through that dark place with you. And someone who's willing to walk through that darkness with other people. And so I need a couple things. One, if you've been in that darkness. And if you've already emailed me, you don't have to send me again. But if you've been through addiction, if you've been through divorce or the loss of someone really important, um, whatever it is, would you send me a message and just tell me your story? And secondly, if you're in a place right now where you don't know the way out, where you're struggling, where you're trapped, whether you're hurting, send me a message. No one will ever see that email besides me. And I will do my best to get you connected with someone else who can walk that road with you. Because you don't have to stay in that dark place alone. You're not by yourself. One, God is with you even in the darkness when we struggle to see. But there are also other people here in this body who have been through what you are going through. And I want us to be able to get connected so that we can walk with one another and help one another in our struggles. Because what you thought 
was sent to destroy you may very well be the thing God is using to save you. Father, we thank you so much for this time. God, we're thankful for the story of Israel and of Judah. And Father, it is my hope that we can learn from their story. That we can learn from the things that they have gone through. And Father, that we wouldn't be people who say we're above it, we don't need it. But Father, we would be the people who hear you call. No matter where we are, no matter how far our minds and hearts have wandered. And then we would simply return to you. We thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your blessing. Most of all, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.